Amen. The words of the song we've just sang, there's a, a, a phrase there that if any time we need God's help to help us to understand his plans for us, it's today. Um, the words I'm talking about are, help us grasp the heights of your plans for us, truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. As we look at Daniel chapter 8, we need God to tell us his plans for us because it's a very specific vision about the future. And I encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 8. And if you're using one of the Bibles providing the chair in front of you, um, this is found on page number 778. Um, and the title of my, vision, my, my message this morning is uh, The Vision Daniel Didn't Understand. That's how the chapter ends. So I want to lay it out to you uh, right at the beginning. We need the Lord to teach us what to get out of this passage. Because if Daniel didn't get it, what hope there is for us? Well, there is some hope. That is the hope of the Holy Spirit. And the hope of the revelation God has given us after uh, Daniel's time. And we can look at this chapter through the perspective of the New Testament and what God has revealed to us subsequently to Daniel. So, friends, let's open our hearts as we prepare ourselves to read God's Word. Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was before me um, a ram with two horns standing beside the, ca the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram I was seeing standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great. But at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as a prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, 
and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who, was, who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their, of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause the sea to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Amen. This is the passage we have before us. And we pray, and I ask you to join me in prayer, that the Lord would, would help us understand the truth for us today. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who does reveal to us the future. You reveal your plans with your servants. But yet, oh, Lord, we recognize that oftentimes your plans are beyond our understanding. Lord, in light of your revelation of what you have given to us after Daniel, in light of the Holy Spirit that you have promised to us, we ask that you would give us insight so that we might grasp what it is that you want us to understand from this passage. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory. Amen. Friends, I don't know about you, but I look at this passage and I approach this passage with, the, with a little bit of 
fear and trepidation. Um, and I, I pray that the Lord would be the one um, clarifying to us some details. And I want to re- uh, share with you there are some things that commentators and theologians debate and have multiple interpretations. I'm not going to able to reveal to you and bring to you all the options, but we're going to try to bring down some things that are helpful for us to remember as people of God living today in the 21st century from this old vision about what God will do in the future. At the beginning of this chapter, we have an important timestamp that informs us when Daniel had this dream. This timestamp is important. In verse 1, we read, in the third year of King Belshazzar. This means that it happened some time before chapter 5. It happened before God gave Babylon over to the Meadow uh, Persian Empire. In chapter 5, we learned that Daniel had been marginalized by King Belshazzar. Remember the story? King Belshazzar did not really involve Daniel in the affairs of the kingdom until the very last day of his reign. But God didn't marginalize Daniel. Actually, during Belshazzar's reign, God gives Daniel two important visions, the one in chapter 7 and the one in chapter 8. God was revealing to Daniel the future. But by the first, uh, by, by these verse, first two verses, we find out that B- Daniel sees himself in the second dream, not in Babylon, but in Susa. Now, what is Susa? It is a city, possibly the capital of the Medo Persian Empire. What a hint! What a hint of what God will do to Babylon. Daniel is still in Babylon. And now he sees himself in Susa. By the very first two verses of this chapter, the fall of Babylon is already assumed. The vision is about the rise of uh, the power of a second kingdom represented by a ram. But this kingdom also will fall because of the rise of a third kingdom represented by a goat. And during this third kingdom, a number of leaders will emerge. But one of them will reduce God's people to almost, almost total extermination. No wonder that this vision greatly troubled Daniel. Remember Daniel? He was looking forward to the end of the exile. He's in, he's in Babylon. He's been through the entire reign of, of Nebuchadnezzar, about 30, 40 50 years. Um, he's now in, during the reign of, of Belshazzar, and, and, and soon this kingdom will, of Babylon will crumble. And Daniel is looking forward for the people of God to return back to their land, to enjoy peace and prosperity, for the worship of God to be restored in the temple. And Daniel gets a vision. And the vision is about the trampling of God's sanctuary, about the destruction of the worship, about the destruction of God's people again. No wonder this vision troubled Daniel. Where do you put this in the big puzzle of the future? There was clear hopes of restoration, but this is not, and and, and Daniel Definitely, is, there's a reassurance that God's people will be back in Israel, will be back worshiping God. 
But this is not the kind of reassurance Daniel wanted to hear. Because this reassurance is more troubling than reassuring. If Daniel didn't get it, do we have hope of a better chance to get it? I would humbly venture to say yes. For one, it's because there's subsequent revelation that God has given to us. Second of all, some things have happened already in history that point to what God has warned about. So let's try to understand what this vision is about. What should we get out of it? Uh, in, in terms of an outline, if you'd like to take notes, here's uh, two points that we're, we're going to look at. The strength and fragile nature of human kingdoms. The strength and fragile nature of human kingdoms. And second, the conflict against the people of God and how that conflict will end. The conflict against the people of God and how that conflict will end. The strength and fragile nature of human kingdoms, just as in Daniel chapter 7. Remember Daniel 7? Um, Daniel saw this vision of four beasts referring to four kingdoms. So also in chapter 8, Daniel sees two animals represent two major kingdoms. Now it's important for us to correlate these two chapters. Chapter 7 is a picture of universal human history. It's a broad picture of history. In chapter 7, we saw history represented by these, by only four kingdoms, but really the focus was on the last kingdom before God will set up His eternal kingdom. And the most severe devastation in, the, in chapter 7 came during the fourth beast, and more specifically during the last horn that came out of ten horns of the last beast. I know this sounds a little mathematical. Bear with me. That's chapter 7. The fourth beast is the most devastating. The last horn of the ten horns of the last beast is the most devastating. In chapter 7, Daniel went very quickly through the previous three beasts, telling us very little. Chapter 8 will focus on the second and third beast. Chapter 8 is a very focused picture of human history in a very focused way. The details of chapter 8 deal with the second and the third beast, namely the empires of Medo-Persia and Greece. You say, how do we know that? Because it's in the passage. It's in the text. Look at verse 20. Who are the, the beasts, the, the animals, the ram and the goat? It's the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. Friends, this is very plain language. We don't need much speculation about this part of the vision. That's why chapter 8 focuses on the second and third beast of chapter 7. Do you remember chapter 2, where Daniel was given the picture of the statue the, the uh, four parts. The head was of gold, representing Nebuchadnezzar. Very clear identification in history. Chapter, the, the, the second part, the silver, Daniel simply said, a kingdom that will come after you. 
And then the third, Daniel said, of bronze, Daniel said, and the kingdom that will come after this one, after the second one. Now, we didn't get any identification of those. It was just a chronology notion. And then the final kingdom, the fourth kingdom. Well, chapter 8 identifies who is the kingdom that comes after Babylon. It's the Medes and the Persians. And after them, it's Greece. Friends, chapter 8 gives us incredible details about the rise and falls of these empires. And these details are so minutia and so precise that quite a few modern commentators today think that the whole book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C. right after these things have happened because they consider this vision cannot be a prophecy. It's too detailed with what has happened in the 2nd century before Christ. So they would consider this prophecy to be history writing, not prophecy writing. Why are these details given? Why so much historical identification? On one hand, these details were written for 100 years prior to the fulfillment to remind us that our God is able to tell us what happens before it happens. You know why God is able to do that for us? Not simply because He has the ability to know the future, but because He has the ability to determine the future. And the two abilities are very different. It's one thing for God to say, I am able to see through what will happen in the future, and I can tell you so you can be ready for it. That's God's foreknowledge. And we believe He has that ability. But here in Daniel 8, it's not simply the fact that God is able to see what will happen. It's more about the fact that God is able to determine what will happen. That's a different picture of the power and sovereign control of our God. Make no mistake, dear friends, that God's sovereign control over human history is not simply His foreknowledge, but His control over these events. And what gives us comfort and what prepares us to face such events is not simply knowing that such things are coming, but also knowing that such calamities are under God's full control. And we will see how these truths are echoed in this vision. Back to the vision, chapter, four, chapter 8. Read, reading verse 4, we, we get the impression of uh, reading about this unstoppable ram. We get the impression that the Medo Persian Empire is untouchable. Who can stand against him? And who can rescue from his power? This is how the Medo Persian Empire is described in verse 4. So the readers are surprised when we get to verse 7 and see that the ram is standing powerless and trampled by the goat, and now there's no one able to rescue the ram from the goat's fury. What a turnover in destinies to this ram that initially was standing untouched. Surely this destiny won't happen to the goat. And yet, we read just one verse later, in verse 8, that suddenly the horn of the goat simply broke off. 
Now, that explanation is very weighty. We understand why the ram was trampled because of the goat. Human kingdoms rising up against other human kingdoms and bring him down. But this one, the ram, the, the, the horn of the goat simply broke off. What a coincidence. What a silence about what exactly caused this break of the horn. We're not told of any human power that caused this break. Hold on to this unexplained um, breaking of power. Hold on to this detail. It will happen again in this vision. After the goat's horn is suddenly broken off without any explanation, four other horns come out. And friends, this is exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. History tells us that within a very few years, Alexander the Great conquered the Medo Persian Empire, who in its own time conquered the Babylonian Empire, who thought was the greatest. So the Persians proved their power by taking over Babylon and proved their, their sovereign control over the world and feel invincible now within very few short years, less than five years. Alexander the Great, this, this upcoming uh, king of, uh, of the Greek Empire, took over all of the Medo-Persian Empire. And we're told, history tells us, that he did it while he was still in his early 20s. History also tells us that at the age of 32, he suddenly died. Totally unexpected. Totally unprepared. No nation has taken him over. No, the Greek Empire continued to have dominance and influence, but not because, not through Alexander the Great. Actually, we're told that the Greek Empire, after his death, had to be divided among four of his generals. And one of those four generals um, took over the area of, of Syria. And out of that regime came a king that one day conquered and came against the temple of God in Israel, in Jerusalem. Friends, the details of what Daniel gets in chapter 8 are the details that happened about a century and a half before the coming of Christ. It's to show us that even the strongest, the strongest of the strongest cannot endure forever. Even an up, upcoming star such as Alexander the Great is not able to remain in power forever. This is a truth the people of God must remember that even the most intimidating of powers cannot hold on to their powers forever. Ralph Davis tells a story of the aftermath of uh, the Nuremberg trials in 1946. After the execution of the Nazi celebrities, 14 bodies of Hitler's top generals uh, were delivered to the crematorium. The same evening, a container holding the ashes of these 14 bodies was taken out in the Bavarian countryside on a rainy day. And after about an hour's drive through the countryside, the car stopped, 
and the ashes were poured out in a muddy ditch. These men, who just a few years prior were the most intimidating people in the entire German empire, their ashes now were taken away by the rain. It's a great truth that what appears to us as human kingdoms and the power of human kingdoms in minutes, in hours, in a few short years can be totally destroyed and vanished away. That's the point Daniel gives us about the ram and the goat. Get this point. The nations are both furious, powerful, incredibly intimidating, and yet they're fragile. This is how God describes human kingdoms. This is the history where the people of God have to live. This history, dear friends, is our current address. Uh, Jeremiah had instructed uh, the people of, of, of exile in Babylon to seek the prosperity of the city. Because the exile was going to last for a long time. And Daniel certainly did that. But even so, we're given a bigger picture here that even these kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and the rest of the kingdoms of the earth, the mightiest and the strongest of power, in due time, their power and their influence will be broken by subsequent world powers. So friends, don't put your ultimate hopes in any nation or world power. Not even in ours. Not even in ours. As much as we hate our country, God's kingdom, God's perspective gives a picture of world kingdoms that even in their strength and in the height of their power, they will crumble. That's the truth. The reason why we're given these details about the Persians and the Greeks uh, about their strength and fragile nature is to prepare Daniel for an even greater conflict in this vision, not between a ram and a goat, but between a little horn of the goat and the people of God. For this conflict, the people of God must be prepared for and warned about because it will hit home. This is how we actually turn to, to the rest of the vision in this chapter, the vision Daniel didn't understand. The conflict against the people of God. Starting with verse 9. Starting with verse 9, the, the rest of the vision focuses on this fifth horn that comes after four horns that followed uh, from the goat. Look at verse 9. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Now the phrase the beautiful land is used again in the book of Ezekiel as referring to the land of milk and honey. So this fifth horn will actually now attack Israel, the saints, the saints of God. It's a great assurance to see um, the people back in their land, but this is not the assurance. This is not the kind of news they want to see, that the people of God will be attacked again, will be destroyed again. Notice how this fifth horn is described in verse 10. His greatness and influence grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and he threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them? This is a huge description. It tells us that the contest, conquest of this king is not over a physical matter, that somehow his conflict 
will actually be a spiritual conflict as well. In verse 11, he set himself to be the great, as great as a prince of the host, and he took away the daily sacrifices. Uh, the place of his sanctuary was brought low. And in verse 12, we are told that the host of the saints and the daily sacrifices were given over to this horn. And this horn also prospered with, in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Wow! This is a, a gloomy picture for the people of God. Now, the history, the, the, the history tells us that two centuries later, prior to the coming of Christ, a pagan king arised out of Syria by the name of Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king, a successor to one of the four thrones of the Greek empire. And here's how Anti what Antiochus did. He killed Israel's high priest in order to put someone else in his spot. He forced all Jewish practices, especially those related to the Sabbath and circumcision, to be totally prohibited. In every town of Judea, sacrifices were offered to the heathen gods, and the Jews were forced to participate in some, such worship. Whoever was found with a scroll, scroll of the Torah, or whoever was found circumcising his children, was put to death. On December 15th, six, um, 167 BC, a heathen altar was built in Jerusalem on top of the great altar of, of burnt offering. And on December 25th, the first heathen sacrifice was offered through it. In some way, this was worse than the exile. Because everything that was in Jerusalem, everything that represented the worship of God, everything that represented the presence of God, the people of God, was trampled down. In some ways, dear friends, um, we actually, the record tells us that there were 80,000 Jews that were killed in about three days in those times. Antiochus IV, where could people turn to in trying to understand why this happened? Where would they turn to? They had prophets regarding the exile, but where would they turn about this problem? Well, the answer is Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 was written for this day. A day had come when this prophecy of chapter 8 of Daniel was going to be an explanation and was going to be an assurance that all of this is under the sovereign control of God's hand. Was it not the kindness of God to prepare His people for such extreme troubles they were to endure? And even if the immediate referent and purpose of Daniel's vision uh, was to Antiochus, the fourth, Antiochus Epiphany, there are some great lessons for us to, to, to learn today as we live 2,000 years past this event. Um, in the interpretation of the fifth horn that the angel gives to Daniel, there's a few details I'd like to point out, and there's a few lessons we can learn from these details. Notice, when will God allow a devastation to happen? When will God allow this to happen? Look at verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. In other words, friends, God will allow evil to increase and wickedness to grow before He will bring about its destruction. God, in His sovereign control, will allow 
evil and wickedness to grow before he will bring about its destruction. This principle is known about God as early as Genesis chapter 15 when God tells Abraham that his generation, his offsprings will have to wait in Egypt for about four generations before they're going to enter the promised land. And in Genesis 15, 16, God tells us why Abraham's descendants were not going to enter the promised land right away. Why the wait? God says, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Remember what God gave the Israelites a command to do when they entered the, the promised land? Kill and slaughter everything. And we have a hard time believing, why would God do that? It's because God waited 400 years for the wickedness of those nations to rise to its max. And then God used his new people to drive them out. God allows under his control for wickedness and evil to rise so that when he brings the day of judgment, his judgment is totally justified. There's no question about the justice of God. And that's what God is doing here in Daniel chapter 8. When will these things happen? A little later in the future. When? When rebels have become completely wicked. Friends, the fact that God allows evil to happen, the fact that God allows rebellion to flourish, should not, should not make us think that God doesn't care about evil or about rebellion. He does. And if you want to see a picture of how much He cares about it, just look at how severely He punishes just one sin when He's ready to punish it. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. One bite. Think, think of Achan, one stealing away. Think of Moses, one disobedience. Think of Ananias and Sapphira, one hiding away of, of one small truth and how just and severe his punishment was. Why isn't God acting the same way, in the same consistent way, when evil is rising? Here's why. So that his day of judgment will be eternally justified. That's it. And this king will cause deceit to prosper. God will allow this king to, to promote deceit and have deceit prosper. He will consider himself superior. When he, they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the Prince of Peace. In 1 Maccabees, um, one of the Apocrypha, which we would consider a mere history book for us. It has no spiritual authority for us as scriptures, but nevertheless, there are some historical details about what has happened. We read of Antiochus's deceit and murder. His uh, tribute collector came to Jerusalem with an impressive force, and he addressed the dwellers of Jerusalem peacefully, <clears throat> and gained their confidence. And then suddenly, he fell on them, on the city, dealing with them in a terrible blow, destroying many of the people of Israel. He acted against God's people, against God's temple, and against God's worship. Do you know what the name um, uh, of Epiphanes means? The name that Antiochus attributed to himself? 
That was not a name he was, it was given to him by his parents. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. The word Epiphanes literally means God made manifest. So here's Antiochus. When you pronounce his name, you're literally saying, Antiochus, God made manifest. That's a kind of assault this king has done, not only against God's people, not only against God's worship, not only against God's temple, against God himself. Friends, this last description reminds us that the conflict against God's people is never only a conflict of human nature. It has a spiritual nature, and its ultimate target is not simply the people of God, but God himself. That's why, despite the great conquest of evil against God's people, against God's sanctuary, and against God himself, notice the last description the angel gives Daniel in verse 25. And for this description, is worth reading this entire vision. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human hand. What a great ending to this horrendous tragedy. Everything this, this horn did, everything this king did against God and his people, it will be brought to an end, but not by human hand. History tells us that just three years after destroying Jerusalem in December 164 B.C., Antiochus died an early and gruesome death, totally unexpected. Our sovereign God is in control of human history. Job said a similar point about the mighty men who hate justice. The mighty are taken away by no human hand. Friend, this was the destiny of Alexander the Great and the, the, the horn that broke off. This is also the destiny of Antiochus Epiphany. This is the destiny of all those who put themselves against God. This is what Daniel had to know and write down for the saints. This phrase that tells that our God is not just a God who knows the future, but a God who determines it, and in the end, He will act to destroy those who oppose Him. This is why the vision of Daniel 8 is so powerful and so needed and so important, because a day will come when the saints of God will need to know about these events. Knowing that God will destroy this king will not make suffering less painful. Knowing that God will destroy this king may, does not make suffering less painful, but it makes it less of a panic. It makes it less of a panic. We can look at suffering in its pain with hope that God had promised that he will vindicate, that he will destroy anyone and everyone who opposes God. At the end of this vision, Daniel overhears a dialogue between two angelic beings. Would you look with me to verses 13 and 14? And there's a great assurance here. It appears that even angels were interested to learn about how long will this be. Verse 13, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifices, the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. Now, it's important to realize that this question of how long is asked not by Daniel, but by the, by the angels. You know what this tells us? That heaven itself is interested to know 
about the suffering of the saints of the people of God. They too are interested to know, how long, O Lord? How long will this be? How long will your name be defamed? How long will your worship be stopped? How long will truth be trampled? This is a great reassurance for the saints to know they're not alone when these things will happen. And the answer Daniel hears is in verse 14. 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. Now, this number is hard to interpret. There are at least two major school of thoughts to how to think of this number. Some think of, um, of them as morning and evening as referring to one day, and therefore it would be 2,300 days. Um, others would say that morning and evening refers to the morning and evening sacrifices. So if, if it's 2,300 sacrifices in the morning and evening, that really is 1,150 1, days of, of time. If it's 2,300 days, if you put that together, that's about six years and four months. If it's 1,150, that's about three years and two months. Now, historians point to the reality that it took about this time to reconstruct the temple and reconsecrate the worship of God, as now we know that the Jews celebrate Hanukkah, to reconsecrate what Antiochus Epiphany has, de has desecrated. Whether or not these connections are actually true, um, here's the point. If it is relating to 2,300 days or six years and four months, that is a picture of seven years minus a few months, an incomplete time of seven years. If that's the case, the picture given here is that somehow God has cut short the time of that suffering. It's an incomplete suffering. The second point, by looking at these days, whether it's 2,300 days or um, 1,150 days, is that no matter what, how long the time is, it's a fixed period of time. Not one day extra will be suffered outside of God's determined control. This is why this vision is not simply about God having the ability to look in the future and know the future. This vision is picturing a, us or giving us a picture of God who actually determines the future. And that's a great reassurance for the people of God to know that no matter how long the suffering will be, it's a fixed time. And God has made that time, has cut that time short. How gracious of God to do this for His people. Now, even though it's very clear that these events of chapter 8 describe the attack of Antiochus Epiphany in the second century before Christ, yet these events become a pattern of what will happen with the people of God in even a greater distance. The phrase which the angel used to describe this event the rebellion that causes desolation, is used again in chapter 9, verse 27, and then again in chapter 11, verse 31. This tells us that the events of chapter 8 are just a foreshadow of multiple events that will come again. Other kings that will act against God and His people, not just once, but many times. No wonder that Jesus links Daniel's vision about Antiochus' persecution 
to the final persecution of the end times. In Mark chapter 13, we read the Scripture that tells us, Jesus told His disciples, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in My name, claiming that I am He, and He will deceive many. You must be on your guard. You, must, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged. And when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. No wonder that throughout the New Testament, the apostles speak not only about one Antichrist, but about many that will appear throughout the history of the church. But we should take to heart Jesus' own promise in Mark 13, 20, that even on the backdrop of this terrible calamity, it says, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom He has chosen, He has shortened them. And then in verse 23, be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. What a great promise for us as the people of God to know that suffering is still in hold for us. And yet it's a fixed time. God has shortened those days and God will triumph in the end. We can face this future being assured that even this suffering is under God's control. We can face this, this future knowing that even this evil that God will allow to prosper, God will destroy. And what is one assurance of that truth? One assurance of that truth for us, looking back now to Christ, is that Christ has come to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, so that on the cross He might destroy the works of the evil one. It is in the cross, friends, that God has given us a great assurance that He will destroy the works of the evil one. He has already done it by the, by the cross, and a time will come when His full consummation of the kingdom will completely annihilate and destroy the kingdoms that oppose God. That's why, dear friends, the gospel is a great assurance and a great encouragement for how we should look to the time of suffering. The, the gospel is not just a message that God has restored us to Himself. That's true. God has restored us to Himself through the cross. And if you're here today and you don't know about how you can be restored to God, I would love to talk to you more at the end of the service. But the gospel is also the promise that in the cross of Christ, God is committed to destroy evil forever. And the way God did it puts together both suffering and victory. It is through the death of Christ and then through His subsequent resurrection that evil has been destroyed. In the same way, dear friends, this gives us courage as the people of God to look to suffering with courage because as we walk in the shoes of Christ, in the path of Christ, through suffering, we will also walk through His resurrection. Oh, friends, I love what, what, what Calvin said about this passage. If nothing had been predicted, the pious would have glided gently downwards to despair in consequence of their heavy affliction. If this hand had not been predicted, they would have thought themselves deceived by the splendid promises concerning their return. 
But when they perceived everything occurring according as they have seen, forewarned, this became no slight solace in the midst of their woes. For us, the people of God, this means that the promises of God are not a deception. God has promised us great victory, but He has promised us to do so through suffering. That's how we claim the victory, the suffering of Christ on our behalf, but also the suffering that we follow in the path of Christ. Yet, dear friends, we can take great comfort that He will be destroyed. The evil one will be destroyed, but by no human hand. God Himself will give the blow. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise You that You have taken so careful and detailed care to prepare Your people for what is to come. And we thank You that You are the God who not only knows the future, but determines the future. We praise You for Your glorious promise that in the end, you, by your power, by your hand, by your word, will destroy the evil one. And we thank you for the promise we have seen in the gospel that you are serious about destroying the work of the evil one. Oh, Lord, we look forward, even in, in the face of suffering, we look forward, trusting in you, relying on you, asking for your grace to be given to us, to be strengthened in faith, we pray for those who are persecuted around the world, for those whose hope might be small, for those who may have very little glimpse now of the promises of the gospel because the, those who afflict them seem to be so intimidating. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them. And we pray that this vision of the future, this power of your hand to destroy the evil one may be made fresh to these Christians who suffer around the world under persecution. And Lord, we pray that you would prepare us, your people here in the West, to be ready to follow you no matter what comes our way. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.